So the talk tonight is a continuation of the topic that uh, we began last week and didn't end up finishing. So the provocative title that I've decided on is the, the Joy of Ethical Conduct. And for some people, that's an oxymoron. So we spent a lot of time last time um, talking about the, the frame of this and the fact that uh, we could instead use the term non-harming which a lot of people uh, resonate with very well. You know, we want to live a life of non-harming. And so my assertion was that that is the same as an ethical life. That's what it means, not to harm ourselves, not to harm others. And it's also in line with compassion. That's the aim of compassion. And furthermore, that acting in this way is a joyful way to live because if you're not causing harm, what's there when there isn't harm there? It's something positive. We can frame it in different ways, but um, joy is good enough. So the intersection of ethics, compassion, and joy. And I wanted to cover two main areas. One, they're not really separate, but we just separate them conceptually so we can talk about them. One is the non-harm to ourselves in our own experience. And the other is non-harm through our interconnected presence in the world. So we pretty much covered the, the first one last time about ways in which we can... Uh, I, I located the responsibility for this non-harming mainly in ourselves and through our own experience. It's not so much that we're going to obey a conceptual ethical code as may be offered in other settings, um, or that we're sublimating our own awareness to some kind of abstract code of some kind. But rather, we are called to um, be aware in the moment and take responsibility for doing what is not harmful in this particular situation. And that requires a continual engagement with, um, with the world and with the situation. And that learning to do that is actually very much the same as learning to practice mindfulness, <laughs> learning to practice compassion, learning to be present, learning to have some sensitivity. And we start with our own experience and whether or not it feels like it's bringing harm through a misalignment in some way. And then... Um, I talked a little bit about a sutta where we did several suttas, but I'll just, I want to do this one to kind of transition. There was one called the Chaitanya Sutta, which is about um, intention. And it started, it starts out with when a person is endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will, may freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue. So the Buddha is making an assertion that if you were in a certain situation behaving ethically, there would be no reason to have remorse about that. If you didn't do any harm, you would have no remorse. And this is not too hard to understand logically. And so 
we can even feel it in our own experience. That's the encouragement. But I like the way it says it's in the nature of things that this is how these two things would be related. And then it creates this whole chain. It, you know, it goes on. For a person free from remorse, there's no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. For it is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. So he's building up, you know, what is, what is the fruit of living in a way that doesn't harm? So it starts with non-remorse and then goes on to joy and various other things all the way up through uh, concentration, tranquility of body, then concentration, and then insight. So he's saying that, found, that virtue or ethics or non-harming is the foundation for eventually the path of awakening. I don't think we need to see it as absolutely um, linear like that. We know from experience that it doesn't always go that that neatly. But the um, I think the invitation is to see the relationship between all these things, starting with the foundation of uh, ethical conduct. So there's a path. We're invited to see that there's a path to follow through this process. which maybe reminds us of the Dhammapada verses that begin that teaching. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with an impure mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. And then conversely, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows, like a never-departing shadow. So this gives the explicit link between the state of mind that you're in when you do something and how it feels. And so we would strive then to have a mind that's in a peaceful state as opposed to a state that's influenced by greed, by aversion, by anger, by fear, by delusion, by envy, all the things that plague our mind when we act based on those it doesn't have as good of a result. We're invited to explore, of course, whether that's really true in our own experience. Okay, so we end, I think we, I think I read this one last time. Wise people of great wisdom do not intend for their own affliction, for the affliction of others, or for the affliction of both. Rather, wise people think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. I think that's pretty interesting because we think of wisdom as this kind of far away thing, maybe the guru on the mountain, and maybe it's something that we think we don't have any of or we think that we're going to get someday, and then once we've got it, we'll have it finally. But this is, I think, a little more subtle than that. It says that it actually says what wise people do, which is that they think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. So it's how you are. Wisdom is how you are. Are you thinking about people's welfare and the welfare of the world? So that is um, quite a beautiful definition of wisdom. And it would arise naturally through that sequence, starting with non-harming. His wisdom comes from inside. Okay, so now we're starting to get hints. This is the first quote that, that links us, the hints between of the connection to others. 
what's good for us is going to be good for others too. Uh, they're all kind of interrelated, and we can make choices about um, choosing things that are for the mutual benefit of uh, everyone involved, not just our own interest, which is often how we approach situations if we're not in a wise state of mind. We come in with, how can I get what I want? How can I make it safe for me? How can I prevent that person from being a certain way? You know, we have these kind of agendas that are mostly based on, you know, getting something for me. But um, my teacher talks about sometimes uh, having a mind, instead of being self-centric, being situation-centric, which I like. Because we're not asked to replace, you know, concern for ourselves with concern for others. You know, it's like, stop thinking only of yourself. You should just think about others, which is another kind of simplistic ethical notion that we might get in ethical systems. This is more inclusive. It says there's a whole situation of which you are a part, and we're striving for something that is for the welfare of all of those components involved. So this is a, a case where we need to have a broad view and see how everything is interconnected and what would be the best. We don't intend for anyone else's harm or for our own. Okay, so that leads us into how we would apply these ideas of ethics in a wider context. So some teachers do make this very explicit, um, taking the ethical teachings into the realm of the collective. So I want to read a piece from Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a wonderful Mahayana teacher. Um, and he, he uses a metaphor of, of the seed, um, which maybe I'll just take a moment to describe <coughs> that our, our conduct in the world, whether it's of body, of speech, or even of thought, is often likened to planting seeds. So our intentional, um, our intentional conduct in the world, I should say. So when we decide to do something um, in the way that all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, we're creating not so much um, a kind of a ledger book idea, you know, if you did something good, you get a tick mark in the good column, and if you did something bad, you get a tick mark in the bad column, and somewhere there's a total, a running total of those, and it's going to be balanced at some, at some point. This is kind of how our mind works sometimes, um, but it's not like that. It's actually much more like agriculture. So it's more natural than that. We're planting seeds. Each time our mind intends something and or we do something, we are planting a seed based on what the motivation was for doing that. If the motivation was compassion or wisdom or love, it's uh, different than if the motivation was envy or greed or anger. And you, you get the fruit from whatever seed you planted. And we know, any of us who are gardeners know that planting a seed, it does have the definite result that you don't get mangoes out of apple seeds doesn't work that way. Uh, so we get that part. But it's not exactly clear what a given seed is going to do, right? It depends on how well did I plant it? Did I plant it so shallowly that the bird got it? Did I not water it? Did I put it in the shade when it's a sun plant? Did I give it fertilizer? Did I wait long enough? Or you know, did I get impatient and pull up all the carrots before they were done? 
you know, uh, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into what happens from between seed and fruit. And our actions are actually meant to be thought of in a similar way. We plant all kinds of seeds through what we do all day, intentionally. And then which ones grow and develop has to do with what we, um, kind of what we appreciate. Do, do we um, allow our attention to rest on the good ones? Do we nurture the ones that are worth nurturing? Do we actively do things to kind of discourage the ones that, oops, we didn't want to do that? You know, there are all kinds of ways to manipulate how those seeds grow. And this is the realm of wise effort and practice. You know, it's the effort to uh, cultivate things that are wholesome and discourage or prevent things that are unwholesome. And, I, you know, we won't go into a long teaching on that, but just um, it's helpful to start thinking more in terms of the seed metaphor. Um, because it makes it a little bit less ledger book-like, a little bit less like one-for-one, or, um, yeah, there's all kinds of factors. It, it allows for a little more complexity. So with that in mind, I want to read this piece from Thich Nhat Hanh. It's pretty deep, so um, bear with it and maybe listen with an open heart. This is from a 1994 essay that he wrote a long time ago. For those of you who may not have been um, remember, either not remembering or weren't alive in 1990, <laughs> I don't know how old some of you are. Um, that was around the time of the first Gulf War and um, uh, the elder Bush was president. So that was when we were first getting entangled with Iraq. So he says, the night I heard President Bush give the order to attack Iraq, I could not sleep. I was angry and overwhelmed. I practiced breathing, walking, and sitting. And a few days later, I decided to go to North America despite my anger. I saw that I was one with the American people, with George Bush and with Saddam Hussein. I had been angry with President Bush, but after breathing consciously and looking deeply, I saw myself as President Bush. I had not been practicing well enough to change this situation. In our collective consciousness, there are some seeds of nonviolence. And President Bush did begin with sanctions, but we did not support and encourage him enough. So he switched to a more violent way. We cannot blame only him. The president acted the way he did because we acted the way we did. It is because we are not happy enough that we had a war. If we were happier, we would not take refuge in alcohol, drugs, war, and violence. And then he changes a little bit and says, the most precious gift parents can give to their children is their own happiness. If father and mother themselves are happy, the children will receive seeds of happiness in their consciousness. And when they grow up, they will know how to make others happy too. When parents fight, they sow seeds of suffering in the hearts of their children. And with that kind of heritage, children grow up unhappy. These are the roots of war. The most important practice for preventing war is to stay in touch with what is refreshing, healing, and joyful inside us and all around us. If we practice walking mindfully, being in touch with the earth, the air, the trees, and ourselves, we can heal ourselves and our entire society will also be healed. If the whole nation would practice watering seeds of joy and peace, and not just seeds of anger and violence, the elements of war in all of us will be transformed. 
I love that he can take one little incident and turn it into an entire enormous teaching about how to live. There's a lot in there, actually. I know that went by kind of fast. Um, and you may not have fully digested all of that or agree with all of that. But the essence that he's saying is to make kind of a, a simple argument that ethics brings happiness. <laughs> Remember that the sutta we read, the Chaitanya Sutta, said that earlier. So ethics brings happiness, and seeds of happiness prevent war and transform hate. So it's compassionate to be happy, and happiness comes from integrity. So this is this inner relationship between ethical conduct, joy, and then um, and compassion, and hence the healing of ourselves and the world. And this is so important to remember, especially if we do work in this realm. It is difficult and depressing and brings anger. He says at the very beginning that he started out angry. He's practiced for a long time, and still, when something happened, he got angry. But he didn't just stay there, because he knew that wasn't really a helpful response. Um, so he worked with it and practiced and ended up realizing these other things, realizing that he needed to plant different seeds, and that there's, he talked about the collective consciousness and the fact that we're all interrelated, and that we can't just throw out and abandon some person that we think is not behaving the way we want to, you know, to what degree are we complicit in that behavior? Um, this is pretty deep. We, he's going into realms where there might have to be some faith if you haven't practiced this way, but for Thich Nhat Hanh, at least, it's all of a piece. It's all uh, together and linked. And um, he really sees, he really deeply understands that the transformation of his own heart is what is needed to affect the world. This is from Henry David Thoreau. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. So you may not think so at this exact moment, but everyone in this room has tremendous seeds that are very good. Um, coming here, sharing the Dharma, even just sitting here, if it was, I don't know if it was your first 45-minute meditation ever, um, but just coming here and sitting here and doing that, uh, very important seeds have been planted, and we can nourish them if we choose. So another way that we can see the link between ethics and compassion comes from the work of Roshi Joan Halifax. I don't know if any of you know her. She's a wonderful Zen teacher based in New Mexico, who has done a lot of hospice work, as well as creating programs that support caregivers. Because she was a hospice caregiver herself for a while, and she began to realize, wow, this is hard work to do spiritual support of others. So she devised, I think based on her own needs, she devised um, some uh, programs that are for people who serve as caregivers to go and train in um, self-compassion so that they don't burn out, basically, and end up bringing harm so she created um, this thing called grace, and this are her words. When interacting with those who are suffering, caregivers often experience empathic distress, secondary trauma, and moral suffering. Grace is a process I created to move out of such distress and into grounded and principled compassion. 
So GRACE is an acronym, and I, I'm not going to discuss the whole system tonight, but I wanted to focus on the R, which stands for recall. So this is what Halifax says about this step. Recall that your intention is to serve others, act with integrity, and preserve the integrity of others. Your motivation keeps you on track, morally grounded, and connected to your highest values. I, I was struck by that statement um, because she says that, you know, we're intending to serve others and to act with integrity. Okay, we can get that. And then the last one is to preserve the integrity of others. I thought, ah, oh, this is a very interesting dimension of compassion that we may not have consciously in our minds if we are people who do compassionate work of some kind. So not only are we acting with integrity, but we are trying to preserve the integrity of others. What would that mean? So this is part of this um, using our ethical conduct and non-harming in our interconnected interaction with others. So this, this is an important part of compassion. No matter how others are behaving, we want to preserve their integrity. So this is a challenge to us, I think, because people aren't always behaving that well, are they? Like President Bush attacking Iraq or, you know, some other leaders you may have heard of since then. So no matter how they're behaving, we want to preserve their integrity. Why is that an act of compassion? Actually, that's a real question. Anybody want to offer a suggestion? Why is it an act of compassion to preserve someone else's integrity? Because if they harm their own integrity, they will suffer. That's right. Will so we're, yeah, for and, and likely for others, if, especially if they're kind of unprincipled in how they act. So we are, yeah, Kitty. Well, I also think if we're not seeing that other person as having integrity, then we're putting ourselves in harm's way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, yeah, so, right, so you're saying that part of it is also to see that the other person does potentially have integrity, even if they're behaving badly, yes, so we're helping ourselves, actually, by viewing them in that way and not othering them, not putting them in another category, you're bad, and then it picks up what Heidi says, is if we allow them to behave badly um, and not preserve their own integrity, if we don't try to help them do that, they will suffer. You know, that's what the, that's the seeds that they're planting. And we, it's compassion not to want people to suffer, even if they're not behaving well. So this may be calling upon us to really get deeply into our own integrity. But I have a couple of examples. Um, there was actually a time, uh, I remember long ago, when I was myself uh, not behaving very well in a situation. I was in a conversation with a couple of other people and I think I was not being mindful. I think this was before I was seriously practicing. I was not being mindful, and I was kind of getting caught up in what was being said, and I was asking a lot of questions of this person, who was a fairly well-known person, so I was sort of getting overexcited, essentially. And uh, a third party who was also standing there with us um, took hold of the person, the famous person's sweater or shirt or something and said, oh, you know, I'm really delighted by this, um, this sweater that you have. What material is it made of? And she was actually touching it and sort of encouraging 
him and me to touch it at the same time. It was a total non sequitur to the conversation, but it brought me right into the moment. And I actually realized, wow, I've kind of gone off track. And so that, that physical touching, it was obviously designed to kind of get me out of that mode I had gotten in. So I was very grateful to her in retrospect. And then, um, you know, sometime later when I was doing some of my chaplaincy work in the hospital, it's, um, you know, I go and I, you know, I just have conversations with people who don't, who are in difficult situations and may or may not be a spiritual conversation, kind of depends what they want. But, you know, I sit there and I, I try to have, try to engage them and bring their mind into some kind of balance or serve some kind of need for them. But as you can imagine, when there's a person there willing to listen, people who are in the hospital and are suffering um, can get onto rants about how terrible things are either how terrible their health is and how badly it's going for them and, and so forth. Or they can also get into rants about how bad they think the hospital is. And they'll say that it's terrible, they don't come fast enough, the food is bad. You know, and they'll go off on this thing and there I, you know, there's a compassionate presence listening to them. And so it's a chance to really start unloading. And there's, you know, there's some degree you want people to be able to, to say things that they couldn't say to their nurse or their doctor. Yeah, that is part of the point. But I, I actually interrupt things like that because I don't want them to sit there and plant seed after seed of anger. You know, it's not going to be good for them in the long run. It might feel good in the moment, but we know how anger is. feels good in the moment, doesn't feel so good after you've done something, uh, acting out of anger. So just generally, because I understand to some degree how seeds work, having observed that in my own experience, I try to change the subject in some way that, uh, in order that they're not watering those seeds in their mind. So it's an act of, when I read that phrase from Joan Halifax, I thought, oh right, it's preserving their integrity. So then um, I thought I would touch on the teachings of non-duality, which, um, often begin to come in when we think about compassionate work and Mahayana teachings on, um, not, on, on not othering other people. We're starting to get into the realm of interconnection. They're the same as me. They're suffering. I feel as my own suffering. These kinds of teachings you will hear, and they all go under the kind of the realm of non, non-duality, of not, um, not creating dichotomies, not creating dualisms, not creating separation. So um, these are, by the way, also in the Theravadan teachings. They're just not emphasized as much as they are in the Mahayana teachings. It's nothing new. But they, we have to be a little bit careful with them sometimes because this is the topic we're talking about here is ethical integrity and, um, yeah, and, and acting well in that way. So non-dual teachings sometimes can sound like um, they're not so related to ethics because there are, um, when they're misunderstood, let me say it that way, when they're misunderstood at kind of a lower level of understanding, um, we may get the sense that ethics don't matter, that we, that there aren't ethics, that we can somehow transcend them. Um, Yeah, like for example, I remember a Zen teacher talking about the precepts one time and it was quite beautiful, actually. She's a wonderful teacher, and she talked first about how the precept not to kill means, you know, that you you don't do it, and it, it's um, 
and and you can get your you really make it clear to yourself that you're not going to kill. And then she says that as experience deepens, you come to understand that the phrase "not killing" means that there isn't killing, and that you know life is endless, and um, creatures that die. It's not that they haven't died, but there's no ending to life, essentially. So no killing, no stealing. How could there be stealing? Because you can't own anything. There's no self. And so once you get into this realm, um, there can be uh, mistakes about whether or not ethics actually matter. So let me say clearly that um, ethics stands firmly in the realm of this world, and as long as we're living here, it is relevant. So... Um, for example, the Korean master, so Zen teachers do get this, the Korean Zen master Sung San said, there is no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. It's a good Zen statement. And it's, um, and it's true. You know, ultimately, there is no right and no wrong. If you're sitting in meditation and all you're feeling is body sensations and thoughts passing through, and our job in that case is to just notice them, right? Oh, anger, there it is. Don't react, you know, etc. Um, it's true that at some point it's all just phenomena arising and passing. The, the, you, you really do understand that there's nothing right or what is it? What is the phrase in the West? Uh, there's nothing right or wrong, but thinking makes it so. It's actually true. Um, there is no inherent. Uh, state value statements that you can make with words let's say it that way um, but this is getting into very deep realms and much more often is the relevance of whether or not there is actually harming going on i would be remiss not to say that enlightenment is to discover what is beyond seeds what is beyond karma um, that the planting of seeds, the planting of good seeds, and the elimination of uh, the, the discouragement of unwholesome seeds is an endless process, and not to be uh, completely done through, you know, through gardening techniques will not get you all the way there. Um, and we come to understand that at some point, but you have to see that for yourself. And there does come at that moment uh, the insight into how to render seeds impotent, which is more effective than uh, just uh, encouraging the good ones and discouraging the bad ones. But nonetheless, as long as we have a body and a mind, we remain firmly planted, to use that, to use the agriculture analogy again, firmly planted in this realm of uh, doing volitional actions and that that is the path for us to really, you, you can cultivate freely, don't worry about it. You can't have too many good seeds. <laughs> it doesn't ever happen that way. And you can't uh, uh, dig up too many, uh, too many weeds. That's, it, you know, it's dig away, please. So I would say that maturing Dharma practice is marked by greater and greater sensitivity to being able to act without harm for ourselves and for others in various ways. So this includes a deep respect for ethics, not a rule-based system, but ethics as a lived responsiveness to the world to act right now in this moment in the way that brings the least harm or doesn't, or includes the most benefit for all the people involved 
wise people think of the welfare of themselves, others, both, and the whole world. So changing our mind to, as often as possible, think about welfare, consider welfare, as Ajahn Suchito says, may this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. And that's a little mantra that he came up with for himself. So please take care of yourself joyfully. Um, it's, it's a joyful path to live with less and less harming. You, know, you can feel good about that. It's totally unselfish and good, in fact, to celebrate um, acts of ethics that are bringing joy. We celebrate the action, not saying this person is a certain way. I'm so great. But this action was really beneficial, felt really good. I can feel the ease and freedom of it. So in this way, we, you know, we become, not to sound trite, but we become a, be we become a beacon of light in the world. Uh, a person whose very way of being is bringing benefit, is um, aimed toward the reduction and maybe the end of suffering. So we can transform the seeds of war in ourselves and others by practicing the precepts, as well as good mind qualities like mindfulness, concentration, love, compassion. And there's no more joyful work than that, really. And if it's of interest, of course, you could try a practice that I just hinted at last time, but I, I really recommend it as a practice. You could even try it tonight, which is that when you're lying down to go to bed, you just review the day and think of, you know, two or three actions that were good. They could be actions of the body, of speech, or of even of thoughts. They could be um, positive actions that you actually did something for somebody's welfare, or they could be actions of restraint where you had an opportunity to do something and you realized um, and didn't, didn't say it, didn't do it, didn't think it, um, turned your mind away from something. So, and then, and then let go, smile, relax, and go to sleep peacefully. It's a very simple little practice, just takes a few minutes, and if you do it every night, I guarantee it has positive effects. So, yeah, so I'll end there and just ask if there are any uh, questions or comments. Can you yeah. speak a little bit more to integrity? It's a really important word, and you skimmed over it a couple times. Mm -hmm. I guess I would put it in the realm of synonyms of ethics, integrity, morality, etc. Um, but integrity, I think, I guess, since you wanted a, a bit more about it, um, one thing that I appreciate about that word that I don't hear as much in other synonyms for it is that integrity uh, has to do with a unification of a system. And you can, this becomes then a very visceral feeling. So for example, at the guided meditation that we did where I encourage seeing the body as, as if it were a tree trunk, for many people that is an image of integrity, is a, a sense of uprightness. It's not an accident that we sit upright in meditation. I mean, I know there are other postures, but the uprightness of the body and particularly the straightness of the spine, is meant to encourage a certain straightness of our being. 
And straightness of being is another way of saying integrity. And so there's a, a wholeness also to that uh, integral, right? This is, if we say this is integral to that, there's a sense that it's inherent, is that it's part of something. And so uh, acting well in the world has a way of becoming part of our character, becoming just part of the way we are. I think ethics becomes less and less deliberate over time. And, you know, it's more and more just how you are. You couldn't do something different. Um, you're too aligned in that track. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, the, the viscerality is part of a lot of what I talked about last time, is that, that feeling that we actually have when we're in alignment. It feels good. It feels open. It feels spacious feels um, non-remorse. <laughs> and if we're not behaving well, we know what that feels like. Stomach tight, you know, a little bit of furtiveness. Is anybody going to see that? You know, should I be doing this? You know, that kind of feeling. You can feel that in your body. <laughs> so this can be a real reliable guide. Yeah. I think. It reminds me of the term structural integrity. Structural integrity, yeah. When something is solid and will, will stand up. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We could build structural integrity into our body. Actually, I think breath meditation does that. Being a breath meditation practitioner myself, I can say that over time it undoes a lot of knots in the body. And those knots are places where we've tightened up around something that wasn't so good in the system. And when we release that, there's a feeling of openness, ease, integrity, structural, structural strength. Okay, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to end with a little um, dedication that I learned recently from um, Marcia Rose that I think speaks very well to this topic. It's just a little sharing of the merit. So um, if, you're, if you're so inclined, um, just bring your mind to a meditative state, and we will wish this. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest from this day's practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, toward the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.